certainly hope that you do. Would you please take that and turn with me to the book of 1 John again. We're going to continue our study through the epistles of John as we have been on for a while. I find, but we're going to find ourselves this morning in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4 and working our way to verse 10. I find it to be a, a very appropriate passage, quite frankly, for a, a, a Father's Day sermon. As a matter of fact, I've entitled my sermon today, Who's Your Daddy? And the subtitle for that is, and we're, we're going to take a spiritual paternity test this morning. The Bible is going to force us to do that. And we're going to do that this morning as we look through that. And I'm going to read from 1 John chapter 3 here in just a moment. But before we do, I want to remind you that the epistles of John, as well as the book of Revelation, it was written by the same John who wrote the gospel of John. And, and, and what, where that becomes appropriate for us to know is that oftentimes when you get into the epistles, particularly to the section that we're going to read in this morning, you can start to hear and, and really begin to see how John was really affected by many of the things that he wrote about in his gospel. Because of the teaching that he was able to experience firsthand from Jesus. Because of the things that he was able to see and, and hear. It really impacted. It made a, a lasting effect upon him theologically and doctrinally and ethically. And all those things really come together this morning in, in the passage that I'm going to read for you. Because I believe that you can find a real uh, basis for what John, what we're going to read that he writes in what something that Jesus Back in John chapter 8. You'll recall that in our study of the epistles thus far, there's been a continued emphasis in John's writing on us abiding in Christ, abiding in the Holy Spirit, abiding in the Word, abiding in Him. I mean, he's used that word over and over again. Jesus also used that word a lot, talking about abiding, continuing to remain in Him. And then one of the times that he used that was back in John chapter 8. You don't need to turn there, but I just want to I want to read something for you and give you an opportunity to see how these things kind of coalesce. Because in John chapter 8, Jesus tells some Jews who were following him and believing in him, he said this, he says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. He says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Right. We know that. That's a, that's a very familiar passage to us. But listen, when Jesus spoke those words originally, it caused a great fury among the, the Jews who were there, the Pharisaical Jews who were there at that time. They looked at and said, what do you mean we will be free indeed? We're children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. Which makes me want to say, what do you call the Egyptians? And what do you call the Babylonians and the Persians? And what do you call the Romans? And who you really are, are under that now? But they were interested in talking about physical bondage, but Jesus was talking about a different kind of bondage. Being in bondage to sin. They were interested in talking about their lineage, about who they had descended from. They wanted to talk about being descendants of Abraham. But Jesus is going to turn things, and he's going to talk about being their spiritual lineage. And I just want to read this passage for you this morning. You don't need to turn there. But listen to what Jesus says. Beginning in John 8, verse 34, Jesus answered these Pharisaical Jews and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not abide in the house forever. But the Son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works. 
seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you do not, you are not able to listen to me. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And then Jesus goes on to say this. He said, he who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not a God. Now, those are some tough words. Jesus was not afraid to look at the Pharisees right in the face and say, Don't tell me you're children of Abraham. Because you don't, you don't obey the way Abraham did, and you don't love the things of Abraham. Don't tell me you're children of God. Because you don't love me, the one that God has sent. And you don't accept me as the Savior of the world. And don't tell me that you're children of God because you don't listen to the words. And you can't listen to the words. Why? Because you are of your father, the devil. Any wonder that they picked up stones to throw him by the end of that chapter to kill him? What I want you to understand this morning is this. I believe that this interchange, as it relates to who your father really is and who you may think he is, is at the heart of what John writes to us in his epistle this morning in 1 John chapter 3. Listen to what John says and see if you can kind of, with me, begin to detect how what Jesus has said at this earlier point is influencing when he writes, beginning in verse 4 of 1 John chapter 3. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin, and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his sin remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for its truth and we thank you that it is there and has been provided to us by the right of the Holy Spirit and now by the aid of him to help us understand it, that we might be able to truly get our grasp around the truth. And not only that we might be able to grasp it for the sake of understanding it, but that we might be able to grasp it so that we can apply it. Because Lord, we know that it's truly not enough just to know the truth, but that we must do the truth. We are people who live as a result of who we are. We've learned that so far in our study of the first.
Let it produce fruit in our lives. Fruit that will stand. Fruit that will point others to Jesus Christ. Well, no doubt, maybe many of you have gotten your bulletin and you come in and you look down at the sermon notes. And you look at those and you're thinking, wow, I should have brought my magnifying glass with me this morning. At least that's what Ted told me that he was going to have to do to be able to see his. He told me that earlier this week. And I want to apologize for the font size of the notes there, but there was a lot that I wanted to include that I wanted you to have, be able to take with you uh, for your further study. And one of the things that I want to include there was this outline that, as I noted in your, in your bulletin, was an outline that I adapted from, from John Stock, who originally produced it back uh, many, many years ago. And that outline had helped me greatly this week in my preparation, and I wanted to share it with you. This passage that I've just read to you from 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 to 10, has traditionally been a very difficult passage for, for pastors and theologians to get their hands around as far as the, the flow of thought. How is, how is John communicating what he's communicating here? I don't think it's really such a hard thing for us to figure out the overall emphasis, but it's kind of hard sometimes to figure out exactly what his flow of thought was in the process. I hope this outline will be helpful for you and at least being able to help you follow along with my thought processes this morning. And so, really what I want you to know is that these, this passage really breaks down into two different halves. The first half occurs in verses 4 through 7, and the second half begins in verse 8 and works its way through verse 10. And they really are parallel to one another. They're designed to be read from back to back. They're designed to be read linearly. But when then you begin to go back and study them, you begin to see that the second half, verses 8 through 10, really serve to expand and to really serve as a commentary on verses 4 through 7. And it works both ways. Verses 4 through 7 sort of expand and serve as a commentary on verses 8 through 10. And I'm going to handle it that way this morning. As a matter of fact, my points are going to serve as, as sort of parallel points. Every point that I make to you is going to come from both sides. Now the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that the, each passage opens up with a general phrase. Verse 4 opens up this way, whoever commits sin. Verse 8 opens up this way, he who sins. And what we begin to know right away is that both parallel passages are there and instructive for everyone. We're all included, right? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in some ways, we'll find ourselves being implicated by what this passage teaches us. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to know is that verse 4 begins this way. Whoever commits sin, that word commits there is the Greek word that is in the present tense and in the active voice. In other words, it presents an ongoing and persistent and habitual action. It's something that someone's engaged in now and continues to engage in. Whoever commits sin. When you go to verse 8, you see the, verb, the words, he who sins. That word there is actually a participle, it's not a verb. But nevertheless, it works like a verb, and it's also in the present and active. In other words, it's also talking about someone who continues to engage in sin. Both passages tell us that. Now, it's important that we understand that because Paul, excuse me, John is getting to the issue, he's drawing out the subject of how we are as Christians to relate to the subject of sin. And sin is the first thing that he wants us to understand. As a matter of fact, he defines it for us. He tells us the nature of it, and he tells us the origin of sin in those two verses. Notice first in verse 4 that John talks about the nature of sin. Verse 4, he equates it to lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is a word that means it goes against the law. 
It breaks God's law. But I believe John's referring to something even grander and broader than that. Not just, not just someone who breaks the law, but someone who engages in willful rebellion against the law. As a matter of fact, the word nomos in Greek, the word law, is not even here in 1 John. John doesn't use that word in fact to all of his epistles. And so consequently, some of you may be reading from the NIV this morning, and I, I like that translation, but I believe that it gets it wrong here when it says that everyone who sins breaks the law. That really obscures a little of what John is saying. John is actually talking about someone who is a lawbreaker, and he is someone who is lawless. He is someone who is rebelling against God's law. And, and the reason why I can say that is, is because consider what the devil did in the Garden of Eden. When Satan slithered up there to, to Eve and, and began to tempt her, what had God said? God said, you are not to eat of the trees in the middle of the, of, of the garden. You're not to eat of it, lest you die. And what did Satan say to her? You're not going to die. You're never going to die. God's holding out on you. He knows that in the moment that you eat of it, you're going to be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. So not only is God a liar, because you're not surely going to die, but he's also one who doesn't really have your best interest in heart. You see how Satan worked with him? He didn't just, he didn't just tempt her to break the command that God had given her. He not only tempted her to break the command, but to then even question the integrity of the one who gave the command. I like the way that Thomas Brooks, he's a Puritan writer, has put it this way. He says, sin is something that strikes at the holiness of God, the glory of God, the nature of God, the being of God, and yes, the law of God. That's what it means to live in lawlessness, to be so, to, to be so rebellious against the authority of God that you don't care, not only what God's will is, but you strike it at the very heart of who that's what Satan has been doing. He did it in the garden. He continues to do it today. And it's that understanding that then leads John to talk about the origin of sin in verse 8. The parallel verse there in verse 8 says that he who sins, he who makes it his habitual practice to engage in sinful rebellion of God, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. You see how, you see how John draws our attention to the fundamental evil that lies behind all sin? He says that everyone who sins exhibits a character which finds its ultimate origin in Satan. Therefore, if we read these two verses rightly, we will have to come to the conclusion that our sin is not just mere failings. It's not just mere temperamental weaknesses. Our sin is not some result of some personality problem that we have. Our sin is not just some unfortunate oversight. In fact, if we attempt to define our sin in that way, we are concealing the hard truth that according to Scripture, sin is an active rebellion against God's will that finds its origin in the active assault of Satan against God. Brothers and sisters, that leads me to the first one that I want you to sit in your outline. It's this. Since by its very nature, sin is rebellion against the authority of God that originates from the devil, then its allowance and acceptance is utterly incompatible with one who claims to be a child of God. Now, remember, John, as I, as I mentioned early on, one of the main things 
about this passage is describing for us the indispensable nature of holy living in the life of the child of God. If you'll recall, in previous passages, we've talked about the fact that if John said to abide in him means that we need to practice righteousness according to chapter 2, verse 29. And he also says in chapter 3, verse 3, that we need to, to have pure lives. That's what all this means. The indispensable necessity of living holy and righteous lives is what John is driving us to. And therefore, what he says, because of sin's nature and because of its origin, if we allow it into our lives as a habitual and persistent practice, then we, de we demonstrate that we're not who we claim to be. That's the first thing that John tells us. Notice that he moves on, though, to a discussion of the nature of the work of Christ. He's just discussed the nature and the origin of sin. Now he discusses the nature and the work of Christ in verses 5 and verse 8. Having just told us that the nature of the devil is to sin, what does he tell us about Jesus? In verse 5, he says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. The devil has been sinning from the beginning, but Jesus is sinless, and he too has been sinless from the beginning. What that tells us is the nature of the Son of God. The Son of God, the pre-existent Christ, who has existed from God, being part of God from the very beginning. He is God, very God. He is righteous, as he tells us in chapter 2, verse 29. He is pure, as he tells us in chapter 3, verse 3. And he is sinless, as he tells us right here in verse 5. He has always been that way. Not only in his pre-existent condition, but when he came to earth as the incarnate Son of God, the incarnate God-man, when he lived in this life, he lived without sin. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in all ways, just like you and I, yet he, he, he stood up to that temptation and he never sinned. He was the sinless Son of God, and because he is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, that tells us something important with regard to the work that he came to do. Because you see, this, this verse does not only tell us the nature of Jesus, that he's sinless, it tells us the work that he came to accomplish. Verse 5 tells us that he was manifested, that he might take away our sin. He might remove our sin from us. Verse 8 says that he was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. How did he do those things? Well, first of all, let's ask, how did he take away the sins? Our sins. He took away our sins by being the one who lived a sinless and perfect life, completely and utterly satisfying God's demands, God's laws and God's demands. And he came and he lived that life, and then he was ultimately crucified on the cross. And on that cross, he bore my sin and your sin upon himself. And in the process of bearing my sin and your sin upon him, God poured out his full wrath. His full punishment against us for our sin on Jesus. In His place, those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are then robed in His righteousness. So that when God looks at us, He does not see us in our sin. He sees us robed in the righteousness of Christ. And we are now His children by faith. That's the great exchange that took place on the cross. We gave Him all of our sin and all of our iniquity and all of our wickedness. God punished him instead of us, and in its place, we received all of his righteousness. That is how he could come to take away our sin. How does he take away, how does he destroy the works of the devil? Well, I love what John Stott has written about that. John Stott talks about what are, the, what are the works of the devil? Well, Stott says they are many and they are wicked. And he 
says, they included those things which he insinuated into the perfect creation of God to spoil it. Morally, Satan's work is enticement to sin. Physically, it's the infliction of disease. And intellectually, it is the seduction into error. And he goes on to say, he still assaults men's soul, body, and mind in these three ways even today. But Christ came to destroy his works. How did he do it? Well, he loosed us from his chains. He freed us from the bonds of Satan. He no longer has the power and control over us. That's why we sing that song that has been written in recent years and attached to Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy came. Unending love of Amazing That's what Jesus came to do. He came to defeat the power of Satan in our lives, to destroy his work. Now, friends, let me ask you this. When we take all that into consideration, when we take the nature of Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God, who came to remove our sin from us by dying in our place and ransoming us, and then also destroying all of the works of the devil, let me ask you this question. Can anyone believe that they can be joined to such a one as Jesus and continue to sin. The very character of Jesus himself and the nature of his work for us makes such an act impossible. Brothers and sisters, the implication for our lives is clear. If the purpose of Christ's coming was to remove our sins and to undo the works of Satan, then the true child of God must not compromise with either sin or the To do so is to fight against the very one that we claim allegiance to. And that leads me to the second point that I'm going to do. And it's really a summary of what I've just said. The second point is this. Since by his very nature Christ is sinless, and since he came to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil, then to allow and accept sin is utterly incompatible with one who claims to be a child of God. And actually, this incompatibility is the point that John is getting to. This is, this is what he's going to talk about. This is the message that he's driving home in this passage. We might even say that there's an incongruity in the claim to belong to Christ and to abide in Him while at the same time continuing to practice and accept sin. And so from this, John moves on to another discussion. And here he discusses the nature and the lineage of the Christian. He discusses the nature and the, the lineage of a true believer in verses 6 and 9. And in verse 6, John puts it about as clearly as he can. He says this in verse 6, Whoever abides in him, that's a present, active, indicative verb, so it implies an ongoing, persistent action. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Also present active in What he's saying is, is that you can't at one and the same time abide in Christ and also abide in sin. You cannot latch yourself, you cannot walk in light while at the same time walking in darkness. That's what he said in chapter 1. You can't live a life that travels two separate roads at the same time. You cannot abide in him and continue to live in sin. Those two things do not go together. And then he says, here's the checkup point. Check up is this. If 
sinning is a pattern of your life, then you have neither seen him nor have you known him. Now, I apologize for all the brief grammar lesson this morning, but it actually is important, and I hope that you will bear with me for just a moment. Because in verse 6, we see him use these two things. He talks about having seen and having known. Those are not present tense. Those are perfect tense. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know what perfect tense means. Perfect tense means something that occurred in the past. It was a completed action in the past that has ongoing, continued effects in the present. When something happened over here, it caused some things to continue to take place over there. And what John is saying, you haven't seen him and known him over here, if over here you are behaving in a way that is completely opposed to the way that he is. You can't walk in the light of, of God and at the same time walk in the darkness. You can't have come into a relationship with him and then live a life that is in complete disregard of what he says to be what's best for you. Why? Well, because a relationship with Christ doesn't harden a Christian. It doesn't callous a Christian against the work of the Holy Spirit that makes us more and more tender. The more mature we become, the more sensitive to the Holy Spirit we become. And rather than hardening ourselves against sin, we will cause us to do just the opposite. To have truly seen Jesus, to have truly known Him, means that God's true children reject sin's power in their life. John addresses this issue again in verse 9 when he unequivocally states that whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, you may be scratching your head a little bit and going, what? What, what, what did he say? Um, did he just say that no Christian sins? Well, some have taken this to mean that John is proposing that Christians can become sinlessly perfect. And matter of fact, there have even been some who have proposed that that's what the Bible teaches ultimately, is that a believer can go through this life and as they continue to mature and become more while like Christ, and one day they will live a sinless and holy and perfect life just as Jesus has lived while they live here. Is that what John is saying? Well, if he is, he's contradicting what he said back in chapter 1, verse 8. Because in chapter 1, verse 8, John wrote this verse. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says this, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In other words, John has already said in his writing that none of us are sinners. The Apostle Paul has told us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, necessitating our salvation. But in no way does he go on to say that that means that when we are saved, we will be sinless after that. The Bible will not contradict itself, and I would suggest to you that John, in such a short span of verses, would not have intentionally contradicted himself either. So what does he mean? Well, I won't ask for a show of hands this morning, but if I did, how many of us could testify to ourselves that as a Christian, we've not lived perfect sinless holy lives after coming to know Christ ourselves? I'd raise both hands. Just from this morning. <laughs> I know how easy it is to trip up, to miss the mark. As a matter of fact, that's what sin actually means. The word harmartia actually is a, is a word that comes in the Greek from, from, from someone who shoots a bow and arrow. And it talks about 
the, where the archer lets the arrow loose and it leaves his bow, it's aiming for a specific spot. But oftentimes that arrow would miss the spot. It would go left or right or it would drive low and it would miss the bullseye. That word was harmartia. It referred to when the, when the archer missed the bullseye. And it was then brought in to describe what sin is in our lives. It's every time, whether in thought or deed or action, you and I miss the mark. And listen, it's not our mark. We're not shooting toward our bullseye. It's talking about missing God's bullseye. It's talking about missing God's standard of perfection. And every time you and I miss God's standard of perfection, we engage in sin. And brothers and sisters, who of us can say that does not happen? Yet let me be quick to say this. Though the Bible tells us that we will walk through this life and we will occasionally trip up and we will sometimes fall into unexpected sin, the Bible also tells us we are not to willfully engage and accept that sin as a willful pattern of our lives. That is the difference. And that is exactly what John is referring to here. He is telling us that we are not to give in to our own nature, the messages of which continue to pull at us and drag us down. We are not to allow that to become a part of our everyday practice to the point where we habitually begin to practice it without any regard to what the Scripture says. Why? Well, because it tells us we've been born of God. His seed remains in us. And what that implicates is that since we've been born again through our faith in Jesus, we've been given a new nature. A radical transformation has taken place. A new force lives within us. It's the force of the Holy Spirit that drives us. And consequently, John can confidently say that if that is the case with you, if you've truly been born again, then you may on occasion succumb to temptation to do something contrary to God's law and God's will in your life. But you cannot go on living in that sin, making it a pattern of your life, because to do so would indicate that you have not actually been born again at all. And that leads to the third point in your The third point is this. Since a Christian by his very nature is one who has entered into a relationship with God through Christ and has been born of God, then to allow and accept sin is utterly incompatible with what he claims to be a child. So these are John's arguments. He's identified the nature and the origin of sin. He's identified the nature and the work of Christ. And he's identified the nature and the lineage of the true believer. And in every sense, his words remind us of the indispensable necessity of rejecting and practicing habitual sin. And instead, living holy and righteous lives. In fact, John goes on to say this in verse 7. He tells us that one's attitude towards sin is a telltale sign of who the spiritual father actually is. He says in verse 7, He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. In other words, our ongoing habitual pattern of living righteously gives a clear indication of who we belong to. Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. Friends out the tree produce apples. Pear trees produce pears. Orange trees produce oranges. John says righteous deeds can be traced back to the righteous one. On the other hand, verse 10, he 
says it. And this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now I want you to notice John divides everybody into two groups. Not three, only two. Not one, but two. And the two are in opposition to one another. One is good, one is evil. One is, one is uh, right, the other is wrong. One group has God for their father, the other group has the devil. And the paternity test that John says that we must take is that it is decided by how we answer this question. Do I make it my ongoing and habitual practice to engage in holy and righteous living, or have I allowed and accepted a sinful lifestyle that is opposed to God's law and God's will in my past? John's conclusion is that he or she who practices righteousness is God, and he or she who does not is of God. Let me get my sermon this way. My sermon says is this. Because of the nature and the origin of sin, the nature of the work of Christ, and the nature of the lineage of the Christian, whoever willfully allows and accepts sin as a practice of their lives must honestly examine themselves to see if they truly are a child of God. Now let me tell you what myself talked about this week before preaching the sermon. I knew it was my sixth anniversary. I thought to myself, wow, what a way to go out and preach your sixth anniversary sermon on sin. <laughs> Confronting people with sin. What a great way to start. See if you make it seven years. <laughs> then I thought about this. Follow me. I thought about the fact that I've got four kids. I've got three daughters and a son. Thought about the fact that what kind of father would I be if I looked my children in the face, knowing the truth, knowing what they needed to know, knowing the things that were important for their safety and their welfare and their ability to grow and to be productive in this life. What kind of father would I be knowing that truth but never sharing it with them? And then I thought, what kind of pastor would I be if I stood before a congregation of people that I love? Knowing the truth of God's word, opening it up, reading it for myself, and never taking it and sharing it with you. Friends, that's why I have no other option. As a father, no other option as a pastor, but to stand on the authority of God's word and proclaim to you this. You will behave like who you belong to. And the Bible is forcing you to take the spiritual fraternity test and examine your life and ask, who's my name?